thank you to all the musicians this morning. Well done. Thank you for your, thank you for your service, um, giving us the opportunity to just focus on the words and sing. Uh, what a great time together. I'm sure all of you know, I think Dick mentioned it earlier, that uh, Hurricane Irma is supposed to hit the coast of Florida. Um, I think it already hit the Keys this morning, and it's going to hit the west side of Florida and make its way up the coast. Um, I'm sure many of you uh, have friends or relatives who are down there who have evacuated. Maybe some are still there. Um, but it's it's pretty powerful storm. supposed to do a ton of damage. Uh, so... Obviously, we can be in prayer for the folks that are there, um, loss of homes and, and probably life as well. Uh, we're still, the people in Texas are still recovering, which thank you for those of you that gave toward the, uh, the offering for Harvey. You can read about it in the bulletin, but uh, just an amazing amount was given last week. We'll give you the total uh, next week at the communication meeting, and uh, we're just looking forward to partnering with the church down in Texas for that. Um, But Irma has already hit multiple islands in the Caribbean. And I don't know if you've been reading about this, but uh, our hometown of Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, we heard a story from a pastor who pastors a really large church in Lynchburg that was just crazy this week regarding Irma. Uh, He he had this, uh, it's a good idea to take his wife on a 25th wedding anniversary trip to St. Martin in the Caribbean. Well, of course, he's been planning this for months. He takes her down there, and Hurricane Irma forms in the Atlantic while they're there and starts to make its way towards St. Martin, and they book a flight out, and the airport shuts down before they can get out of St. Martin. And so um, he notified his church, we're going to be here when this Category 5 hits. And it went, the eye went right over the island, and um, they, they were in a shelter, there on St. Martin, had to spend the night uh, during the worst of it in the shelter. Uh, he posted some stuff after the fact. They made it through, but he posted some stuff on social media, some pictures and everything, and said that they had been evacuated from their shelter at 5 a.m., and that right after they were evacuated, the roof of the shelter had been ripped off. And he had a picture of the shelter after the fact, and I mean, it was just trashed. And um, some of the, the shots that he got of the island were just heartbreaking this amazing destruction that has that has happened there um and i can't imagine you know when you hear a story like that you sort of put yourself in his shoes he and his wife's shoes and i can't imagine huddling in a shelter on an island that is not my own and listening to a category five hurricane just roar outside all night long i'm sure they didn't sleep at all and when you think about that and you see some of the video footage of these different hurricanes and what hap- what's happening um, in these different areas, the power of nature and particularly the power of a storm like this is almost unfathomable. I mean, I watched footage of the floodwaters from Harvey move concrete barriers like they were twigs. And it's unreal to see this unfolding and realize the power of nature and, and watching some of these videos, and I'm sure being in the shelter during that night, the the fury of a storm like that produces an awe in us like nothing else can. I mean, there's nothing quite like a, a thunderstorm. Of course, I, I prefer to enjoy them from the safety of my house, but there's nothing quite like a storm because you feel helpless. You recognize, I'm really not in control. <laughs> Human beings aren't really the center of the universe. Um, you know, and, and there's nothing quite like it. And in our story today, 
we're going to see the disciples experience a storm and they're they're afraid of this storm as it as it hits and as they're in this boat but then what's amazing about this story is after the storm has been calmed the awe and the fear that is produced in them by the one who is able to calm the storm is even greater than the fear produced by the storm itself. So if you're not there, turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41 is what we're going to study this morning. Now, the thing about this little story here is that it builds. It builds toward the question that is asked in verse 41. Look down with me at verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The whole story builds toward that question. And our whole series is taken from that question because this this is what you're supposed to be asking yourself as you read this portion of the Gospel of Mark. And I would summarize this story in this way. Jesus' authority over the storm leads the disciples to marvel at his identity. And so the whole thing gears toward this question. And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm not going to break the story and give you the different portions of the story and draw points out of those. We're going to kind of break it down this way. We're going to go toward the question. We're going to build toward the question. I'm going to tell you the story as it is, walk you through it. And then even though the text doesn't answer the question, it sort of leaves it out there so that you are meant as the reader to ponder this question. We're going to try to answer this question, and we're going to try to go back and explore some of the things that I think the disciples would have been thinking as they're sitting there filled with great fear. And I think we do that by going back into the Old Testament and filling in the gaps there of who then is this that can do these sort of things. And then at the end, we're going to draw out some implications from answering that question. All right. So the the question, the answer, and then the implications is how we're going to proceed this morning. So let's start with the question. Look at verse 35 with me. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. All right. So he starts out, Mark says, on that day. Well, what day is he talking about? And if you've been reading the gospel of Mark, you know that this is the day, it's the same day when Jesus has been teaching in a boat by the lake shore on the, on the Sea of Galilee. He's in the boat on the lake shore, and the people are on the shore, and he's been, he's been teaching them all day. Look back at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. All right, so that's the day when this story takes place. It's the end of that day. And Jesus says to them, let us go across to the other side. So they're done teaching. Maybe the crowds are starting to dissipate. And Jesus says, let's go to the other side. We don't, we don't really know why he wants to go to the other side at this point. We don't know why. Although when we get to chapter 5, you're going to discover why he wanted to go across the Sea of Galilee to meet a particular individual that he had some plans for. So they push out into the water, obey Jesus' command. Look at verse 36. And leaving the crowd... They took him with them in the boat, just as he was. So he's already in the boat. He's been teaching all day. They take him just like that. The fishermen who are with him push out into the water, and other boats were with them. So they leave the crowd behind, and Jesus goes with his disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee. So he's been teaching in parables all day. And if you remember about parables, they're given 
so that some people will understand them as Jesus instructs them and as they come in faith. But they're also given so that those who don't respond with good soil and don't come in faith don't understand. And they're actually, their hearts are hardened. So look back at verse 34 or verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word as they were able to hear it. And then look at 34. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So he goes back to his disciples and he teaches them later on the meaning of these parables. Now, I think it's interesting in verse 36 that it says they left the crowd behind. And I think what's happening here is Jesus is going to teach his disciples privately, but he's not going to teach them with parables. He's going to teach them with miracle, with a miracle, with a with the words of his mouth, having command over the sea and the waves. He's going to teach them here and he's going to show his authority to them privately and give them a lesson. And so they're on this boat. They're going across the Sea of Galilee and look at verse 37. Things start to get a little crazy here. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, I'm not sure some of you have been over to Israel and you've walked around the Sea of Galilee. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how familiar the rest of you are with the geography of the Sea of Galilee, but Essentially, it's called a sea, but you have a lake here, okay? And it's pretty small. Uh, I tried to compare it to Lake St. Clair, and, um, you know, it's maybe an eighth of the size of Lake St. Clair. It's 13 miles long, and it's about eight miles wide, okay? So it's not very big. But what's interesting about the Sea of Galilee that maybe you didn't know is that it's actually 700 feet below sea level, okay? It's one of the lowest lakes in the world. But then Mount Hermon, which I'm sure you've heard of, is about 30 miles away, and Mount Hermon is 9,000 feet above sea level. And so you have quite a change in elevation there, and what happens is the cold air off of Mount Hermon will come down, and the warm air from the lake will come up, and it creates a really turbulent situation when it comes to weather. And so the Sea of Galilee is actually known for its crazy storms. And they'll just come up all at once because of that cold air hitting that warm air there. And you could be out in your boat crossing, everything looks great, and all of a sudden a windstorm comes up. And that's exactly what happens to the disciples here. And it's interesting in light of what's been going on this week, these last couple weeks, the word here for windstorm, it's actually used elsewhere in Scripture to describe a hurricane. (laughs) So this is a pretty significant weather event that happens to the disciples here. And the wind is so intense, look at verse 37, that it's, the waves are breaking into the boat. So they're cresting up over the side of the boat, and they're landing in the boat. And it says in verse 37 that the boat was actually filling up with water. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever, I don't know what comes into your mind when you think about the disciples fishing in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, But a few years ago, back in the 80s, they actually found the remains of a boat right on the shore, uh, buried in the ground, the mud there. And they're able to sort of reconstruct what a boat, a fishing boat during this time would look like. And this is kind of, this is a, a replica. This is a model that they built. But this would have been the type of thing that Jesus and his disciples would have been in. So uh, I think it's about 26 feet long. Uh, It can hold about 15 people. So with 12 disciples and Jesus, this thing is pretty full. 
Now, when you look at that, when I look at that, I'm not an experienced um, seaman at all, okay? Uh, So I've been out on a boat a time or two, but I can't imagine being in that thing with 12, 13 other guys and a windstorm comes up and the, the waves are so big that they're cresting over the side of the boat and the boat is filling up with water. I can't imagine what that experience would have been like. And I know that it was a terrifying storm because of the way the disciples respond in verse 38. I'm sorry, uh, 38. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So I know it's a serious storm because these are, these are experienced fishermen. I mean, these are guys that have been on this lake their whole lives, fishing, making their living, and they are absolutely terrified. And Jesus, I don't know if he's tired from a day of teaching. I don't know if he's just at rest in the sovereignty of God, but he's asleep in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion there, and he is completely out during this crazy storm that is going on. And so these experienced fishermen go to him and they try to wake him up because they're absolutely terrified. And it's probably better to read what they say here in verse 38. Look back there. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, you can sort of read that like a rebuke to Jesus. You know, hey, don't you even care? And I don't think that's what the disciples are doing here. I think it's probably better to read it as a honest-to-goodness, genuine request. Like, Can you just get up and help us? We are in dire straits here. Um, I think the disciples had probably learned in the ministry of Jesus that at this point that he could provide help in time of need. I mean, they'd seen him heal people. They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd heard him teach. And so they're thinking, okay, he seems to always have the right answer. He seems to have a plan when things are difficult. So we should at least wake him up before the boat goes under. We should at least try to get his help. And so they find themselves in a difficult situation here. They try to wake him up, or they do wake him up. But I'm confident that the disciples were not ready for what happens next in this story. Look at verse 39. I love the simplicity with which Mark writes this, right? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. So Jesus stands up out of his nap and speaks directly to the wind and the waves. Think about that for a second. He doesn't pray to God the Father. That's not what happens here. He doesn't ask God to calm the storm. He stands up, he looks out over the water, and he speaks into the storm. And he speaks as if he is commanding a puppy to sit down. Stop. That's what he says. The word here, be silent, it can mean to put a muzzle on something. Some commentators translated this, shut up. (laughs) He essentially looks out and says, just hush. And he's speaking to these waves that are crashing over the boat. And look what happens, verse 39. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, you have to understand what's going on here. I mean, we've read this so many times that sometimes we miss what actually happens here. Certainly, the wind stops. Immediately, it ceases. But what uh, the other thing that happens here that's unbelievable is the waves that were moments ago crashing over the side of the boat, 
It's absolutely glassy calm on the lake. Waves don't work like that. (laughs) Wind might come up and then stop on its own, but waves don't work like that. It, It doesn't turn from turbulent, crashing over the side of the boat, to immediately it's glassy calm all across the lake. That does not happen. Rough water doesn't instantaneously turn to smooth water. Then Jesus turns to his disciples away from the the wind and the waves, and he gently rebukes them. Look at verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The disciples had been so full of fear over the storm that they were They were unable to trust Jesus in the middle of it. I mean, that was really the issue that was happening here. And when you read this and you've seen the progression and you'll see the progression of the disciples understanding in the gospel of Mark, it's pretty clear. They, they don't fully get it yet. And we'll, we'll continue to see this. They're struggling. They're trying to understand it. They're trying to trust who Jesus is. But at this point, they don't fully yet grasp who Jesus is. They weren't resting in his care, were they? They weren't trusting his sovereignty. And this is what fear does to us, isn't it? I mean, I know fear is so typical for us. We struggle with anxiety. We struggle with fear. But what happens is instead of focusing on the sovereign care of God, instead we focus on our circumstances. We focus on what's around us. And we always in fear ask the question, what if? What if this happens? And I'm sure the disciples see the water filling up in the boat, the wind and the waves, and they're going, what if? What if Jesus can't do anything? What if this continues? We're not going to make it across here. And rather than looking to Christ and trusting in him, they're asking those sorts of questions. And they're fearful. But what's amazing here is the fear that they feel over the storm pales in comparison to when they see someone calm the storm and have authority over the storm with his, with his words. Look at verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. It's, it's, it's really re- interesting how it's written in Greek. It's like they were fearful with great fear. <laughs> I mean, he's just using the same word and piling it up here to show that these guys are absolutely in awe and they are terrified by what they have just experienced. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another in their fear, in their awe, they're marveling and they're turning to one another appropriately. So saying, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That sense of awe leads them appropriately to that question and they wonder. And here it's like things have been taken to the next level for them. I mean, They've seen Jesus heal people, you know, that happened in the Old Testament. They've seen, they've seen Jesus cast out demons and probably other people could do that in in different ways. But Jesus here speaks directly to nature and the world around them, the natural world obeys instantaneously to him. And so this takes it up another notch for them. I mean, this is the first nature miracle that we read in the gospel of Mark. And so when the disciples see this, it's unbelievable to them. And it creates shock and awe in their hearts. But I love how Mark writes this because he doesn't answer the question for you. At least not directly right after he asks the question. And what he's doing 
as he writes this book is he wants you to read this question and he wants you to think, okay, who is this? What have I just read in the first few chapters about this guy who can calm the storm? And then he wants you to interpret everything that you're going to read after this in light of this man who has command over nature. This is the dominant question in this portion of the book of Mark. Who is this guy who can do this sort of thing? Who can this be? And, of course, the question is supposed to sit there and make you think, but I want to I take a stab at answering this question. I know you know the answer, right? He's God. Of course we know that. But I want to take a stab at answering this question and fill in the gaps for you as we do that from the Old Testament. What would these Jewish men have been thinking? And what would have informed their thinking as they're, as they're watching this scene unfold before them? And that brings us to the answer here. All right. So to answer this question, we see Jesus have authority over nature. Okay, to answer that question, we need to think about the way that Scripture describes the sea, the wind, the storm throughout the Bible. Now, we can't hit every text here because there's so many good ones. And this would be a great study for you to do on their own. But I want to sort of paint a bit of a picture of how the Bible describes the wind and the storm and the waves. Go all the way back to creation, right? I mean, this had to have been in the disciples' mind. Who created the oceans and the storms and the wind? If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, what's interesting in Genesis 1 is that it appears to be that the world was in some sort of chaos before the orderly creation account. Okay, look at these passages in Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you have this picture here of chaos. There's some sort of watery event happening here. And then Genesis, the rest of Genesis 1 and into chapter 2 describes God commanding by his voice and creating by his voice and bringing order to chaos. That's what's happening here. He's bringing order out of chaos. And he's doing that by his words. His words are powerful. And throughout the Old Testament, you see this. God is the one who has authority over the storms, over the ocean. I mean, there's a story that happens very quickly in Genesis that describes this, isn't there? Genesis chapter 8, after the flood. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. God was in complete control and command. He initiated the flood. He caused a flood that would cover the entire earth. And then when he was done with it, he was the one who wiped it all up. And he was the one who put everything back together and caused the waters to dry up and to recede. He has command over all of it with his voice. God does this in the Old Testament, right? Psalm 18. Listen to this. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. 
Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. It's God who has command over the elements of nature. Look at Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. He's the one that does that by the word of his mouth. I love how Psalm 33 describes that. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. It's by God's words that everything that exists came into being. God's words are his actions. When he speaks... It's not just words coming out. He performs things and he acts by his words. He performs his will by his word. So as you read this, and there's so many more texts in the Old Testament that we could go to. But as you read these passages, keep in mind, the disciples are probably thinking of some of these texts. And they're thinking, okay, in the Old Testament, the only one who has authority to to command The ocean, the sea, the wind, and the waves, and the storms with his word is Yahweh. He's the only one that does this. And so then we've just seen this man, our friend, stand up in a boat and speak and command the wind and the waves, and they instantaneously obeyed him. Jesus is doing the very same things that God the Father does in the Old Testament. And so the implication of that, the only conclusion that you can draw from that is that Jesus is divine, that he is the God man. And I think that was what was so unsettling for the disciples here. They're seeing Jesus do the same things that they knew only Yahweh could do in the Old Testament. And so that's the answer. It's the initial answer that we get to this question. Who then is this? And you know that answer. But let's draw out some implications from that for our lives today. So we have the question. We have the answer. Now the implications. So obviously, when you think about Jesus, his authority over the wind and the waves, you have to make the connection to his divinity. He is divine. That's what this shows for sure. That was a lesson to the disciples. But one of the things that you need to do when you think about Christ's authority over the wind and the waves is you need to go a step beyond just thinking, well, he's divine. He's the God man. And then sort of finish there. In the Old Testament, God's authority over the sea is very often tied to his redemption of his people. In other words, the Old Testament consistently makes the case and shows that when God is authoritative and commands the ocean, the sea, the wind, and the waves, it demonstrates that he can save his people. And there's one clear example where God shows his authority over the water and the wind, and by doing that, he saves his people. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Exodus. Yeah, flip over to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. This is right after the people of Israel have gone through the Red Sea. And this is the song that they sing in praise to Yahweh after they've been saved. And I want you to listen to this song and then think about this in light of 
God's authority over the sea and then Christ's authority over the sea. And the connection here is between God and his redemption of his people and his authority over the sea. Listen to these verses. Verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send them out. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then he goes on, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. God delivers his people by showing his authority over the sea. And so certainly these Jewish men were thinking back to the defining redemptive moment in the Old Testament. When God brought his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and demonstrated his authority over the sea, the disciples were probably going, I, this is the type of thing that God does in the Old Testament. He commands the oceans and the waters. And so I think one of the implications of Christ's authority over nature and over the sea for us is that you and I can be confident in his power to save. If he's this powerful over the ocean, he is powerful enough to save. Now, if you're still not seeing that connection, let me show you one more place. Psalm 107. Flip over to Psalm 107. I know it's a little bit of Bible sword drill this morning. But flip over to Psalm 107, and I want to try to make this connection clearer for you, okay? Now, let me explain what's going on in this psalm here. Psalm 107 is a forward-looking psalm, okay? Um, You can see at the top of the psalm, it says book 5. The psalms are divided into five different books, and in general, the last book of the Psalter is psalms that are anticipating God returning to his people and saving them. Okay, you got Psalm 110 in there, which is a key messianic psalm, other psalms that talk about this, okay? And let's just look at, at the first three verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble... And gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So, this psalm is expecting, it's looking forward and expecting that God is going to return and he's going to redeem his people. He's going to gather them in from all over the world. It's a redemptive psalm, talking about God's salvation coming. All right, now, he, throughout the psalm, he goes through and describes different ways that God's going to save his people. Different places he's going to save them from. Look at verse 4. 
Some wandered in desert wastes, okay? And then he goes on to describe God's salvation of them. Look down at verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways, okay? And then he goes on to describe God's salvation of those particular people, all right? Now, go down to verse 23. All right, just to be clear, okay? I know this is a lot of connections, and I want to be clear, okay? This psalm's looking ahead, to Israel's exile and to a time after the exile where God will return to his people and will bring them back together and be with them and redeem them, okay? So it's anticipating that. Now, I'm going to read these verses to you from verse 23 to verse 30. And you, as you read this, you have to think about the story in Mark that we just read. And I want you to see how similar these are, okay? Check this out, verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And then look at this description of going over the waves. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. That describes the disciples in Mark, doesn't it? Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. And look what he did. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. I mean, the story in Mark follows this almost exactly in what happens there. And it's a very similar description. And so the implication here is that God has returned to his people in Jesus Because just like God in the Old Testament, Jesus has the power, the authority to rule over nature, over the wind and the waves. This is the type of thing that God does and will do. And lo and behold, this is exactly what Jesus Christ does. And so there's there's a good chance that the disciples may have even pondered some of these things from Psalm 107. And I think Mark definitely intends us to ponder these things. So how do we respond to this? What is this? What are the implications of this for our lives today? Jesus' divine authority and at the same time coupled with that, his redemption of his people, his salvation. How do we respond to that? Well, look at the next verse here, verse 31. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. We're to thank the Lord for his covenant faithfulness. He's chosen to enter into a covenant with us through the redemption that is secured in Christ Jesus. And our response to seeing that redemption, to seeing that authority, is to thank him, to humbly come to him and rejoice that he doesn't cast us aside when we fail. He doesn't pitch us out, but instead he continues to protect and to provide for us. And I think the best Response that we can have is to thank the Lord for that. And then look at verse 32. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. When you individually thank the Lord for his covenant faithfulness, for his redemption of your soul, for his authority and his salvation, when you individually do that, it naturally rolls over into a public declaration of that worship and thankfulness. It overflows into public praise. 
And one of the things about true thankfulness is if you're thankful in in your heart, you do not keep that to yourself. The consummation, the completing of that thankfulness is for you to share it with other people. When you're rejoicing over something, you automatically want to go and find someone and say, look at what I received. Look at the gift I got. I'm so excited about this football game. You don't keep it to yourself. You go and you share it with other people. And so when we're truly grateful for God's divine authority and Christ's salvation of our souls, there will be public praise that results from that. I think that's the implication of Psalm 107. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. All right, we have a couple minutes left. We're going to have a few moments of silence. And I give you the opportunity to, in your seat, reflect on these things, reflect on the words of Psalm 107, of the redemption that the Lord has brought to your life. And then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to publicly together Fulfill verse 32. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. We're going to publicly praise the Lord as a congregation together. All right. So individually for a couple seconds here, let's thank the Lord for his steadfast love and I'll pray and then we'll sing. Father, we want to thank you for your steadfast love, for your covenant faithfulness to us. You have chosen to enter into a relationship with us. That is an amazing, amazing thing. We are undeserving. We are unworthy. We lack faith. And yet you have been so kind and so gracious. And we want to respond to that grace with thankfulness. We recognize the gift that you have given And we rejoice in it. And we pray that this would be the theme of our lives this coming week, that we would be those who consistently thank you for your your steadfast love. And then that we would return next week. And as a congregation, we would gather together and we would publicly extol your righteousness and your goodness. That's the pattern of our lives. Rejoice and thank you for your steadfast love. And then publicly extol your goodness to us. And so we pray even now as we sing that our hearts would be filled, that we would rejoice in who you are. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.